Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. And I'm Olivia Covington, co-host and editor of the Indiana Lawyer. For one last time in 2021, thanks for joining us. As I'm sure you well know by now, we'll open today's show with some recent headlines before diving into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Bose Public Affairs Group Principal Justin Swanson, who sat down with us last week to preview the upcoming legislative session. Before we get going, this is just a reminder that there won't be a new episode of the podcast on December 29th due to the holidays. But that is then and this is now. We have a great show for you today, so let's get to it. It's December 15th, 2021, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with some news that Indiana Lawyer was first to report. Our listeners in the Indianapolis area likely remember that in the summer of 2017, Southport police officer Aaron Allen was fatally shot 11 times while responding to a report of an overturned vehicle. The driver, Jason Brown, has been charged with murder, and until recently, Brown was facing the death penalty if convicted by a jury. But things changed on December 3rd. Indiana lawyer reporter Marilyn Odendahl was in the courtroom when Brown's case was converted to a bench trial and the possibility of a death sentence was taken off the table. Judge Mark Stoner will now hear the case during a two-week trial that's scheduled for February. If Stoner convicts Brown, he could hand down a sentence ranging from 45 years to life. The Marion County Prosecutor's Office declined to comment on the new agreement when Maryland contacted them after the hearing. But Denise Turner, Brown's lead attorney, spoke with Maryland in court about what the switch to a bench trial means for the defense. It means that I don't know, we can sleep a little bit easier knowing that he's not going to be put to death, and that's not even an option. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the case that we're going to put on, it's the same case. We would put on the same case if we were in front of a jury. There's just more procedures with a jury, jury selection, and all of those kind of things. There's constitutional issues with jury selection. So case-wise, substantive-wise, mm-hmm. our case is the same, whether it's a bench trial or a jury trial, whether okay. there's death or not death, our case is the same. Um, so that, that's not going to change. Early in the case, Brown had rejected his appointed counsel and hired Turner, who did not have experience with death penalty cases. That change created a problem for the court because of the high stakes of a capital murder case. Initially, the judge referred Brown's case to the Marion County Public Defender Agency, despite his desire to choose his counsel. But when Judge Stoner took over in April 2020, he ordered the withdrawal of appointed counsel. Here's Turner discussing how the case might have proceeded had Brown been required to keep his court appointed attorney. And so I think even if the public defender was still on the case, I think that the offer to waive in exchange for dismiss I think that same offer would have been made, honestly. Okay. And I think that aside from seeking a plea agreement, I know that this would be an option that the public defender would be happy with as well. Next, an announcement out of Chicago from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Earlier this month, the National Law Journal reported that Judge David Hamilton will take senior status on the appellate court in 2022. Hamilton is one of the Indiana judges serving on the Seventh Circuit, hailing from Bloomington. Former President Barack Obama appointed him to the appellate bench in 2009, and his decision to take senior status next year means another Democrat will name his successor. It was former President Bill Clinton who appointed Hamilton to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District in 1994. Hamilton stayed on the Southern District Court until 2009 and served as chief judge during his last two years there. Prior to taking the bench, he worked in private practice and served as counsel to former Indiana Governor Evan Bayh. 
The judge will become eligible for semi-retirement status in May when he turns 65, according to the National Law Journal. Judges who wish to take senior status must be at least 65 years old and must have completed at least 15 years of active service. Hamilton's move to the senior status will allow President Joe Biden to nominate a second judge to the Chicago-based appellate court. Earlier this year, Candace Ray Jackson Akwumi was appointed and confirmed to fill the seat vacated by now senior judge Joel Flom. Right after we recorded this episode, we learned some breaking news that we want to share. Judge Diane Wood, who was the first woman to serve as chief judge of the Seventh Circuit, has also announced that she will take senior status, though the exact date isn't clear. Wood's retirement means President Biden will now have a third vacancy on the Chicago appellate bench to fill. Wood was appointed to the Seventh Circuit by Clinton in 1995 and was on Obama's shortlist for the U.S. Supreme Court in both 2009 and 2010. Aside from her judicial service, Wood's career has mostly been in federal public service and academia. Staying in the Seventh Circuit, we've got an update for you on the federal lawsuit stemming from the 2018 groping accusations against former Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill. In case you've forgotten some of the details, here's a recap. After an early morning party in March 2018, former State Representative Mara Candelaria Reardon and three legislative staffers, Gabrielle McLemore-Brock, Nikki De Silva, and Samantha Lozano, told Indiana legislative leadership that Hill had drunkenly groped them. When the accusations became public, Hill publicly defended himself and denied wrongdoing. He was never criminally charged, but his law license was suspended for 30 days in May 2020 after the Indiana Supreme Court determined he had committed battery against the women. The four women filed a federal lawsuit against Hill in the state of Indiana for violations of their rights under Title VII, among other claims. But the Indiana General Assembly intervened, arguing the Indiana House and Senate were the employers of Brock, De Silva, and Lozano, not the state. The Indiana Southern District Court agreed, and Reardon was terminated as a plaintiff. Hill was also terminated as a defendant against the claims brought against him. Now, the three former legislative staffers are asking the Seventh Circuit to reinstate their employment law claims against the state, arguing that the state was, in fact, their employer at the time of the March 2018 incident. The state, however, says the legislature was the employer because the House and Senate had hiring and firing authority over the women. Indianapolis attorney Stephanie Hahn, an expert in employment issues, gave us her insight on the recent oral argument. You know, the Claims Council made a very good argument. The, the Senate and the House are not agencies like uh, maybe workforce development, which arguably could be uh, subject to Title VII to the extent that they're acting as an employment agency and sending people uh, to jobs and referring them to get jobs. I mean, that's kind of the irony in, in this, right? Uh, the, the other thing is, is that uh, with regard to um, the House and the Senate and, and the state, you know, they didn't address this, but one of the things I was thinking about is, uh, it's my understanding that the state employees have certain pension benefits, right, that you only get if you're an employee of the state. Um, and I, I think that it's important to think about this because one of the things that the plaintiffs contend on appeal is that the court granted uh, the motion to dismiss and dismiss the case uh, without uh, giving them opportunity to present evidence while at the same time uh, relying on documents outside of the pleadings. So I think if the matter were remanded and it came back down to uh, the district court level uh, and the record was developed uh, more thoroughly, what you might find from the plaintiffs is uh, if you work for an agency or if you work for the House or the Senate 
or if you work for the governor's office, for example, you all are subject to the same rules with regard to pension, or you're all subject to the same rules and obligations with regard to medical benefits um, and so on and so forth. So they may very well be able to make a successful argument that the state of Indiana is also uh, an employer or the employer, but uh, without discovery, they're going to have, it's going to be hard for them to, to do that. And they really haven't had the opportunity to do that. So I, I thought that that was something to be taken in consideration. The other issue that they raised, which I thought was important, is that uh, if the state of Indiana uh, has the opportunity to decide when it wants to be an employer or not be an employer, you know, that's problematic. Title VII doesn't allow for that. It doesn't say, well, you can decide you're an employer today, but not, not tomorrow. So uh, I, I think that uh, to the extent that uh, the state wants to make that determination, then they're going to carve out special exemptions uh, for, for the state government, which I don't think Title VII provides for. It's important to note that at this stage of the case, the accusations against former A.G. Hill aren't at issue. Right now, the Seventh Circuit is only looking at the employment question. We'll follow the case and bring you updates as they happen. Now for some national news of note. Last week, a federal court in Wisconsin declined to impose sanctions on Indianapolis lawyer William Bach, who represented former President Donald Trump in his challenge to the 2020 election results in Wisconsin. While the Wisconsin judge did call Trump's case meritless, he also said Bach's conduct during the case was, quote, professional and reasonable given the circumstances, end quote. The judge, Brett Ludwig of the Eastern District of Wisconsin, also found that Bach did not materially multiply the proceedings. He said Bach retreated from certain positions when their flaws came to light. However, Ludwig did caution that a ready-fire-aim approach was not appropriate. Speaking to Indiana lawyer, Bach defended the lawsuit, which challenged what the plaintiffs called last-minute changes to Wisconsin election law. He said he was, quote, very happy with the court's decisions on sanctions, end quote. The Office of Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers and other defense counsel did not respond to aisle requests for comment. Back in Indianapolis, we've got some news about the planned opening of the new Marion County Community Justice Campus. You may remember that the Marion County courts were scheduled to move to the complex in the Twin Air neighborhood this month. But that move has now been delayed to February because of COVID-19 related delays in getting some equipment, including cameras, network switches, and other items with computer chips. Once that equipment comes in, the courts will also need time for training. But other criminal justice organizations are proceeding as scheduled. The Marion County Sheriff's Office is still planning to move this month, while the Public Defender Agency isn't set to move until 2023. Other structures on the campus will be completed throughout 2022 and 2023, including a professional office building, parking garages, and other criminal justice buildings. Finally, a story I'm working on for the December 22nd issue of The Indiana Lawyer. Last week, the state's first naloxone vending machine was installed in the lobby of the St. Joseph County Jail. The vending machine was paid for by grants through Governor Eric Holcomb's office and is free for residents who need Narcan. The goal of the machine is to help prevent deaths by offering the potentially life-saving remedy to the public. The move comes as experts say the number of drug overdoses continues to climb throughout the state. Indiana reported a 32% increase in fatal overdoses during the 12-month period beginning in April 2020 and ending in April 2021, according to provisional data released by November, in November by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'll be speaking with multiple experts on the complicated opioid overdose issue and explore how these vending machines could make an impact on the communities they're coming to. Nicholas Terry, the Hall Render Professor of Law at Indiana University McKinney School of Law, an executive director of the Hall Center for Law and Health, 
said that these types of services are key in saving more lives. The, the trick with naloxone is to get it in people's hands and to have it in places where there is the risk of an overdose. That's why we give it to first responders. That's why when we deliver drug uh, treatment drugs such as methadone to people, the homes of people who use drugs, in Indiana, we include naloxone in that packet. And to put it into a jail, like is the, the case here, where there is acute risk and almost no treatment of substance use disorders, is very positive. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. As you can tell, there's been a lot of news in the Indiana legal community recently. If you want to learn more about these stories or anything else going on in the legal world, visit theindianalawyer.com. Up next, Olivia and I sit down with Justin Swanson, an Indianapolis lawyer and principal with Bose Public Affairs, who gives us the rundown of what to expect during the upcoming legislative session. Stay tuned to hear our conversation with Justin. Today's modern law firm at Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. We certainly heard a lot from the legislature over the past several weeks. We're now less than a month away from the start of the 2022 session. Lawmakers will return to the Statehouse on January 4th for what is shaping up to be a busy year. For this week's extended interview, we're going to touch on just a few of the many issues legislators plan to address in the coming months. With us today is Justin Swanson, partner at Bose McKinney and Evans and a principal at Bose Public Affairs Group. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Let's start off with a topic you know a lot about, marijuana. Uh, <laughs> for, yeah, yeah, <laughs> phrasing probably could have been better, but for our listeners that don't know, uh, you're the chair of the Bose uh, Cannabis Practice Group. Um, before Organization Day, Democrats said their plan to support marijuana le uh, legalization, both medicinal and recreational, uh, in the upcoming session. And last week, Governor Eric Holcomb told Indy Politics he is opposed to the outright legalization of marijuana but he doesn't have an issue with lawmakers putting a plan in place should it uh, ever become legal at the federal level. Justin, what should we expect this upcoming session as it pertains to cannabis? Uh, so great question, and this is uh, something that's uh, really been a huge topic of discussion really um, since last session. Um, you mentioned Governor Holcomb's recent statement. Uh, although it's very nuanced, it's a huge shift um, because you could interpret that as him kind of signing off on allowing uh, Indiana small businesses to be able to position themselves to capture some of this market uh, in Indiana that exi uh, exists currently. Uh, so Indiana today has a $2 billion market, marijuana market, that is run by, you know, essentially organized crime and, um, you know, businesses in, in re regulated states, you know, shipping into Indiana. So, our, you know, one of our goals on that issue is to help capture that market, uh, transition the consumers and the producers from the black market to a regulated market, which is uh, proven to uh, reduce youth, youth consumption uh, over time and also reduce uh, some of the violence uh, that's surrounding the, the, tra the marijuana trade in Indiana. Um, when you talk about organized crime, can you kind of explain what we're seeing there? 
Well, so, I mean, uh, you know, if you're not dealing with someone who has a business license, right, uh, there's no repercussions for how they do business. And, you know, street justice is really the one that's kind of uh, driving the, how the business is conducted in Indiana today. Uh, and so, our, you know, one of our narratives is this is actually a pro-law enforcement move to provide that regulated market. Um, you know, and, and personally, it's, you know, if you're seeing politicians joke about it and while still, you know, people's lives are being ruined at the same time, it's, it's really past time to address this as a policy issue and really provide um, safe consumer access to a product that is, you know, prohibition has proven not to work. Is there any movement at the federal level on this right now? So that's a great question. Um, there's tons of federal movement in terms of bills being in introduced. Um, the House has passed the Safe Banking Act, I think, about five times now. Um, but there's no real results there yet. Um, and, and it's almost, I think a lot of people forget now, some of the bigger companies that have been operating in the space for the last couple years, um, I'm not sure they have an incentive for it to come off Schedule 1 anymore. Um, you know, the more time it sits on there, the more time they, you know, have um, time to dedicate resources to capturing more market share, operating other states. Um, so you almost have a, a perverse incentive there from some of the bigger companies who are profiting off of it being on Schedule 1, not wanting it to get off of there. Um, so I personally think, um, you know, if it was going to happen, it would have happened prior to this year's midterms with Democrat control in Congress. Um, I, I personally don't see it coming off any movement, real movement, you know, especially with uh, if you have a change in power, you know, three to five years. And so that's really our message is, you know, we, don't, we can't afford as a state to wait for it to come off Schedule 1. Um, we, our small businesses need time to, to, one, we need to get our regulatory structure set up in a manner that allows our small businesses to outcompete the black market. No state's done that yet. They have not met consumer demand. You look at California is probably a prime example of the black market still controlling the market because the regulations and the taxes don't allow those small businesses to outcompete on price. Um, so our message, again, is we need, we, it takes time to get this program up and running, uh, and this is really a chance to create generational wealth within our boundaries before kind of the out-of-state guys come in. So shifting focus a little bit, um, still a federal issue, looking at abortion, of course, it's kind of blown up in recent months with the Supreme Court hearing arguments both in November and December, I think, on two big cases, the big one coming out of Mississippi and the pre-viability line. Um, so say the Supreme Court rules in favor of Mississippi. Should we expect Indiana to be, you know, at the ready, have a similarly, you know, very restrictive law ready to go from lawmakers? Uh, so I think it, the answer really depends on which lawmaker you're asked there. Um, so on Organization Day, um, Speaker Houston did mention um, that the pending court case, um, and, and he kind of seemed to insinuate that it might not be time to do it this session uh, because I don't think the Supreme Court's really expected a decision uh, until the summertime, so after they get done with session. Uh, and keep in mind, this is kind of a unique, unique year for two reasons. One, it's a short session, so they want to get in and get out by March 14th, uh, maybe earlier. But also, uh, which will really impact sessions, they have new districts. Um, so I think that really um, motivates them, again, to get in, get out, and get them back into their districts to run in their, in their, in their new territories, basically. Um, so, uh, you know, a short session with a Supreme Court decision not, not likely till summer. It'll be interesting to see if they act on anything in the meantime. Perhaps the most vocal issue we've heard recently is over employer vaccine mandates. Governor, Governor Holcomb and the legislature have butted heads over this for weeks. The General Assembly has tried expediting legislation that would require employees to grant religious and medical exemptions to vaccine mandates. No questions asked. Why aren't lawmakers waiting until the start of the next session to address these concerns? Uh, that's a great question, and, and I don't think I have an answer for that, um, other than I think there's a lot of public uh, pressure uh, from their constituents uh, to try to deal with this. 
Uh, and it was interesting, right? Because the, the whole preference of that, um, that hearing uh, a couple weeks ago was to end the public health emergency, which is something that Republican uh, legislators have been adamant about really since 2020, right? Um, and in, so Governor Holcomb came out and said, hey, I need these three things in state law to make sure we can draw down the, some of the federal matching funds to help Hoosiers, basically. Uh, and that's when they uh, also inserted some of that vaccine language, and that kind of turned into a seven-hour hearing uh, and ended up kind of abandoning that, uh, that process altogether. But uh, in the meantime, they also filed already House Bill 1001. Um, so those not familiar with the legislative process, 1001, the number means something. It's their most, the highest priority for next session is, is dealing with this issue. Um, and we do have a hearing next week um, on the House side. One thing that's interesting there is that the first hearing was a joint uh, hearing. So it was the House and Senate. This is just the House. So you could maybe read into that. There might be some uh, disconnect between the House and the Senate on where this is going. And of course, this is a federal thing, but we do have a U.S. Senator, Mike Braun, who came out, I think, just yesterday on Wednesday and said, you know, he thinks it should be employer based entirely, that no states or federal government should have a say in what businesses are doing. So that's really just an aside, not really a question. I just think that's kind of an interesting wrinkle in this. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the, the great part about, you know, legislative process and politics is you always get those. Uh, and it is interesting because it's, uh, you know, he's taking a position opposite of what uh, a lot of the Republicans uh, are looking at doing. So a topic of national concern for many has been parental involvement in schools, particularly in curriculums and how they teach about race. Um, we've heard a lot about critical race theory in recent months. Um, so during organization day, Speaker Houston said he is committed to giving parents more power when it comes to their education. Do you foresee any legislation being passed that addresses that issue? Um, I, if I had a crystal ball and you're asking me to guess, I would say yes, they do, they do, do deal with this issue in some form or fashion. Uh, and really the details matter, uh, and the devil's in the details and what that says. Um, there's a number of states that have already acted on that. Uh, one, I think one of the unique things about our system is, you know, we're part-time civil legislature. So we don't really react uh, as quickly as other states do on some of this stuff. So it allows some of our legislators to take a step back and really figure out what's going on. Um, I know, you know, this was a, a hot topic in Hamilton County uh, school districts. Um, so... Uh, I, I think very likely it will be dealt with in some, some way or fashion. And I don't think there's any objection from schools for more parental, parental uh, involvement. Uh, in fact, I think they would, they'd welcome that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that dynamic play out. Our final question is about an issue that's always important to Hoosiers, taxes. There's been talk of reducing the business personal property tax in Indiana. If the legislature did so, how might that impact Hoosier businesses and the communities where they operate? Um, so, yeah, business personal property tax, this has been a discussion for a number of years. Um, under Governor Pence, uh, the uh, General Assembly attempted to, to do something similar, uh, and really the locals banded together and said, that's fine if you guys want to do that, but we need to, we need to be made whole on you know, permanent revenue replacement on what that looks like uh, so we can be able to continue to provide the services that our public expects of us. Um, whether it happens next year or not, I don't know. It's not a budget year, which I think is kind of working against that. Um, it is uh, Chairman Brown's last legislative session, and this has been, I think, you know, taxes this has been his wheelhouse. Uh, so I think the House is looking to kind of maybe send him a, a parting gift on his way out. Um, I think this might be an issue, too, where there's a little bit of a disconnect between the chambers. Uh, I don't think the Senate is, they've expressed uh, skepticism on the current economy and how long, you know, this will last and whether it's a good idea to make a decision in a non-budget year. Uh, but it'll certainly be something discussed, that and maybe even a cut to the income tax. That's something that would actually help uh, every Hoosier and not just a, you know, a business owner. So that might have a little more broader support than a, a business personal property tax cut.
That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to our guest, Justin Swanson of Bose, McKinney, and Evans for joining us today. Just as a reminder, we will not have a new episode on December 29th. However, you can still catch up or re-listen to any of the Indiana Lawyer podcasts via your favorite streaming service. Happy holidays, everyone.